Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. Welcome back to the No One Fights Alone podcast. Austin, this guest today is going to talk about something that is, uh, hits really close to home. We're going to talk about the C word, cancer. And, you know, I just lost my brother-in-law just a few weeks ago, heart-wrenching battle with, uh, uh, lost a battle with cancer. Yeah, I don't. And I know it hits home no, for you too. I didn't know this before I had experienced it with uh, my partner and significant other, but it seems like a lot of families, a lot of people have experienced this. And it doesn't, we talked about it earlier, it doesn't discriminate. And there's so many portions to this because I think we all see when someone we love is affected and we will see them walk through the entire process and you know, healing or, you know, sometimes not getting better and, you know, getting bad news and dealing with that and doctor visits and and chemo and radiation and all of these type of things, you know, you, you almost get, you can get a bad taste in your mouth for the way that this system is operated and how, you know, we as a society deal with our loved ones or ourselves with cancer. I mean, you experienced it too, I'm sure. I think people have such an aversion to uh, even going to the doctor for fear of a cancer diagnosis. You know, they, that's a, that's an immediate worst case scenario for most people because it's been ingrained in us and for a culture that is, uh, you know, wrought with avoidance, uh, a lot of avoidance coping, there's just not, uh, this is not a community that wants to step up and say, let's go get checked out. Uh, so I think we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but I think it would be, I think we would be remiss in not bringing our guest on and letting her actually spend some time talking about this wonderful project uh, and foundation that she's building. Vicki Speed is a widower of uh, Mitch Speed, who was line of duty death, cancer death, uh, and is now building a foundation called Blue Cancer Connect. Vicki Speed, welcome to the No One Fights Alone podcast. Glad to have you. Thank you, gentlemen. This is really, it's a great honor. Thank you. Well, Vicki, let's, uh, let's just dive in. Tell us a little bit about who you are and, and tell us a little bit about Mitch. I would love to. So life changes. I'm actually a 32-year accountant, construction project management, planned on retiring from it. Uh, my husband and I were about five years away from retirement. You never think you will hear that word. We did not have any family members that had cancer. So funny enough, this weekend is Baker to Vegas, and uh, my husband in 2016 was running Baker to Vegas. Uh, he was 50. He'd been a runner his whole life, uh, had a tough time training over the, over the winter, didn't think a lot of it, and finished his five and a half mile leg, came home, and about six weeks later, he walked into my office, and uh, he looked really bad, actually a little bit of jaundice. And he said, I don't know what's going on, but I just, I don't feel good. And you guys know for men, when a man, when a man says, I don't feel good, it could mean a million things. So I really didn't think anything of it. And I asked him, what do you want to do? And we had a friend who was a PA. So I text her and I said, Hey, Mitch isn't feeling good. Um, she said, why don't you just tell him to run over to urgent care, get some labs done and I'll call him later. I didn't think a lot of it. And that was a Friday. This was in May. 
of 2016. The following Friday, uh, we went in to see her. I'm not going to lie. It was oblivious this whole time. And we walked in and I looked at Mitch's face and I looked at her face and I knew it was serious. And I remember hearing, um, I'm going to step out so I can call the City of Hope, which is the biggest cancer um, center treatment in Southern California. And I'm not going to lie, still didn't get it. I looked at Mitch and he didn't say anything. And next thing I knew, we were walking out. And I remember this just like it was yesterday. We walked out of the doctor's office and he grabbed my hand and he said, you will never ask why. We will not ask why us. And I remember I looked at him and I said, what just happened? And he said, I think you know. And I said, no, I don't know. So the following week, we went to City of Hope. He had 12 uh, tissue samples done and Memorial Weekend. We were home actually entertaining. And, you know, in this couple weeks time, I was going to work. Um, he actually did not feel good at all. So he, he had stepped away from work, just trying to take care of himself. And I remember the phone rang and it was Dr. Hanoon and Mitch put him on speaker and he said, um, Mr. Speed, I am so sorry to tell you, you have a very aggressive stage four cancer and all 12 tissue samples are positive. And I didn't hear anything after that. I, I can personally, I know what that experience looks like when you're sitting in the doctor's office. And I, and I think we had similar experiences there. I mean, when, when my partner was diagnosed, she was 31 and they had said, oh, you have, you know, you have stage three breast cancer and you've had it for five years. Uh, is what it looks like. And I think I had somewhat of a similar reaction. Our, our doctors reacted very different. The doctor walked up and laughing, joking, saying, hey, you know, you got cancer. Wow. And she's like, are you serious? Yeah. And he's like, how would you like me to? He, he got very serious after. He said, how would you have liked me to tell you that? Would you have liked me to sit you down and pat you on the back and tell you everything's going to be okay, but you're very sick? He goes, I chose to try and be a little lighthearted. And I've thought about that a lot and, and wondered if I would have rather taken, heard it from the approach that, you know, you did. Yeah, it's, um, it took me a long time to process it. I don't even think I cried because I think that word is that shocking. And I knew it was a possibility. Mm -hmm. And really in that three week time period, we didn't really talk about it. We just tried to keep life as normal as possible. I was going to work. My son was in school. Um, Mitch was just kind of resting and you have this, um, this horrible cloud looming over your head and you know, it's there, but yeah, I, it took me a really long time to process it. Did you tell friends, family, did you tell anybody did, how did give us a little bit of insight as how Mitch was handling that too? You know, the crazy part is, and I know as men, I'm going to bring this up, um, you are not the best at going to doctors. You are not the best, but I think you guys know when something is really wrong, you know, and you probably don't tell people. And that was the way that Mitch was. Uh, when he got the news, I realized in that moment, he already knew. I, I saw the look on his face. He already knew he had cancer. He already knew it was bad. He just didn't say anything. So when we got the phone call, uh, our son was actually away for the weekend and we agreed we wouldn't tell anyone until we told him first. So we had company, which was a little rough. Uh, they left the next day and it was probably more silence than anything. 
Uh, we knew we had an appointment in a week. We knew that, you know, they said it, uh, we need to st- we need to get you in here right away. Uh, we need some really aggressive treatment. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't, I knew nothing about cancer, absolutely nothing. And being a typical, I guess, person, um, WebMD seems to be our friend. <laughs> so I thought it'd be yeah, really great to get on WebMD and start researching um, prostate cancer. That was probably that my was the worst. worst. Yeah, yeah. It's the worst. Yeah. I did it too. I did it too. So everybody I does it. it. Don't do WebMD. No. Oh my gosh. Um, and, and later on, I'll share why you don't want to do that. But I, I was in complete shock. And I actually, this was a Memorial weekend. And on Tuesday, I had to fly to Arizona for training. And I remember, you know, telling Mitch, I can't go. I can't, you know, he said, no, life is normal. Life is, I have cancer. Like life is normal. So I'm in Arizona. Absolutely no one knows that my husband has cancer. I'm in these pretty intense training sessions with my boss. And I finally just broke. I remember sitting in the middle of class. I heard nothing. Didn't even know why I was in Arizona. And I just, I went outside with her and I just told her, I said, I feel like I need to go home. I, I don't know what to do. Um, my husband has cancer. I'm just trying to digest all this. And two days later, I'm on a plane leaving town. So it's just a big word. It's a big word to digest for any family. So we've set the stage for really talking about something, uh, really a difficult conversation. These are, these are hard conversations because they're, they're so emotional. They're so deep. They're so, uh, such, such heavy wounds, but I want to, I want to pull back a little bit because I want to, I want the listeners to know who Mitch is. So let's, let's, before we get into an even heavier portion of this conversation, let's take a minute, Vicki. And, and who, who was, who was Mitch? When, when did he start? What, tell us, tell us a little bit about him. Well, you know, I think we all say this, but my husband was really a very, very unique man. Um, he grew up in poverty. He grew up, and it's not that it's that it's any different, but he grew up where his father had, he was adopted. His father walked out on him. When he was eight years old, he had an aneurysm burst, should have died. He didn't. He had two brain surgeries, lived through that. And it was really he and his mom and his brother, um, they kind of grew up as the three musketeers. And they threw, they grew up in a, in a little town. Um, everybody knew him and my husband was kind of a wild little boy, but he just, he was a dreamer. And one of the things I loved about my mother-in-law was she always allowed him to dream. She really encouraged it. So in that, I think, um, Mitch had these talents, but I think part of it was healing and maybe not having his dad around. That's where the running came in. He started at a very young age. And he also started writing, which, um, you know, it's probably not the coolest thing to do, but his mom really encouraged it. And with that, just through the years, he would write and write and write. And he had an English teacher in high school who really encouraged him to continue writing and just express himself. And, you know, he was the football player, basketball player. And I remember him telling me it wasn't the coolest thing to do, to write poetry, to write stories but it was therapy for him. So it was either running or it was writing. And it's, it's pretty cool what happened with his life. So he, uh, he ended up becoming a songwriter 
And that was, uh, it was before I met him. He was writing music, right? Still writing stories and poetry. But uh, shortly after we got married, he decided he wanted to uh, roll the dice and see if he could become a um, signed country singer. And he did amazing, has a beautiful voice, came pretty close to being signed. He opened for some really big names, Trace Adkins, Daryl Singletary. So he, he was close. It was close. We were struggling, though, between juggling marriage and our son was two at the time. He was gone. I was working. Uh, it's a very, very tough life to have. So... His best friend in the band actually uh, was diagnosed with leukemia and died within a week. And one of the conversations they had before he died was he had told Mitch, um, are you really following your passion? Are you really following like your heart? And uh, I didn't know this conversation happened, but out of that was uh, Mitch telling me that his life dream had been to be in law enforcement. He just never pursued it. Uh, he just kind of figured he was doing what he was doing. His background is a heavy equipment operator. It was a family business. Uh, he went to work for the government. He just knew heavy equipment, construction, singing, songwriter, you know, songwriter, writing. So we put the, um, or I should say we, he put the dream on hold of, of really pursuing a Nashville career and this story's kind of funny. He, uh, I was at work and it was a Friday and he came by my office, never, never came by my work, walks in, he's kind of dressed up and he says, I have to tell you something. Okay. He said, I just applied for the LA County Sheriff's Department and I passed. I had no idea he wanted to do this job. I had, I, I was speechless. And he said, but the worst part is I have to be back tomorrow to start the process and I need a suit. So that kind of started the whole journey in law enforcement. But the coolest part is when he was in the academy, um, I'm sure you guys know this, where they search your cars and things get kind of crazy. Well, he had taken my car to the academy and we cleaned it out, but I left a CD in there from when he was a, um, when he had his band. And for whatever reason, this was the day they were going to ransack his car and they found the CD. So he said, yeah, we're running and we come around the corner and all you can hear is my music blaring through the parking lot. So it was embarrassing, but it was, um, it was actually really cool. It was the beginning of him singing actually for LA County. So he got to kind of have the best of everything. He was the he was kind of the, the go-to boy for the sheriff, for our city, for any big event. So I always told him I felt like he got the best of everything. You know, that's one of the great things about uh, Academy Live or whatever training academies that are that are either live-in or multi, multi-day. multi You really learn their personalities. I can't tell you how many singers have derived out of our academy. Uh, and, and you know, you, you discover the past. That's so great. What a great way to actually be introduced to the to the agency. Yeah, so it was, cool. um, it, it was amazing. So he sang the national anthem at graduation and it, I think it was amazing that he got to continue to sing, that he got to continue to really pursue his passion and then do what he loves, which was law enforcement. So how many years did Mitch have with uh, LA County? He had 16 years when he died. Okay. And contracted con cancer as a job related injury. He did. It was, um, I know it's probably not the same in every state, kind of as I'm 
researching all of this, but in California, it is presumptive, which that's a whole nother beast in itself. But yes. But there was a lot more to Mitch there. And I know you, through conversations you and know, I've had on this, uh, learning more about your project, he was uh, much more than just LA County deputy. He was a lot of, uh, a lot to his guys. He was a mentor. He was, tell us a little bit about that part of Mitch. Well, I think the best way to describe him, uh, funny, we just had this conversation yesterday, was he was a husband, a father, a man of God, and then a cop. And that's what he was known for. And um, it's rare. It's ve- I think it's very rare to find that. I didn't know, I guess until he got sick, because I really hadn't spent a lot of time in the department or at the station, but he just, um, he loved people whether it was on the streets or personally or as partners, he loved people and he just always wanted to make a difference. And he was just a very simple, kind man. He lived that way, whether it was, uh, in, and I know that maybe kind of makes him sound weak, but the, the crazy part is he was an incredible street cop. He was, um, he had a reputation where we live. He was the guy you didn't want to run into. He was the cop you didn't want to be arrested by. But he was fair. And even on that side of it, he changed a lot of lives. I can give you a story. I was at a funeral about a year after Mitch had passed, and I was sitting by myself, and it was a rough crowd, I'm not going to lie. And it was for um, somebody I went to school with. And a young man came up behind me and he said, um, excuse me, are you Mitch Speed's wife? And, I, and you, you kind of cringe because I didn't know anybody there. And um, I said, I am. And he said, well, I, I just need to tell you a story. I'm so-and-so's son. And I said, oh, I, I do remember your dad. And he said, we used to live by you guys right when you got married. And um, he said, I went to prison. And Mitch actually came to see me. And it's because of Mitch that I'm not in prison right now. And, you know, I was so moved by that. And I just felt like that just really described Mitch as a person. But I think when Mitch got diagnosed with cancer, I think that's when everything really came to light about who he is, who he was, who he was becoming. He really, I think with that diagnosis, it was never about him. It was about everybody else. It was about me, my son, his partners. Oh my gosh. He was so worried about what was going to happen to his partners. You know, he wasn't at work. He didn't, he wasn't there to have their back. He wasn't on the streets with them. And he just was an incredible man, whether it was the community, it was church, it was our home. It was so, yeah, his, his legacy is very big. You know, oftentimes I hear people um, talking about the, the diagnosis of cancer and the, and the battle that ensues. Uh, it Oftentimes when you're sick, it's just you, but cancer seems to drag in all those around into this and drag is probably not a fair word. It's done willfully. Uh, but I think dra- the connotation of drag is nobody really wants to go down this path, but Austin, maybe you can speak to this, that the loved ones are impacted so greatly as well through this. And, and oftentimes there's a lot of guilt with that. Like I'm not sick, but I'm still hurting over this entire journey. Well, I think so. I think there's a couple of different things where when you're a loved one of this, and this is my perspective and my truth, right? Which is you, you look back at memories and at moments and, you know, friendships that like you realize that you took a lot of stuff for granted and you realize that, you know, this, this person who is sick has people that love them for 
a variety of reasons, right? And you start to hear these amazing stories of of your significant other and the impact that they've had on people and you realize how special they were and how important they were to so many people. And you had no idea until that. So it just brings life into perspective. It slows it down and it allows you to be present with that person and understand that life is about connection. Life is about, you know, all of those type of things. And you you don't take it for granted anymore. You know, you just seem to love deeper, see things clear differently. So, so we've got a good, uh, we've got a good look at Mitch. Let me, let me take us back to, uh, the diagnosis where we're at, kind of where we were at in the first part of the conversation, Vicki, where you've got the diagnosis, things are swirling. What's, what happens next after the, uh, the weight of this has soaked in a little bit and you know, you're, you're, you and Mitch together are facing the full on fight of, of his life as it were. What, well, tell us can a I cuss? Am I allowed to cuss on here? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. We welcome it. Well, I, in Austin, I'm sure you might be able to understand some of this. Um, with cancer, today is great. And by four o'clock tonight, everything goes to shit. And I never, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know. So we got the diagnosis and the original plan was uh, within two weeks, he was going to do um, nine weeks of some aggressive chemo. Okay. Well, about a weekend, he went into kidney failure. I mean, this is like, talk about putting your shoes on and just running. So I just thought, okay, you know, being a wife, you have this calendar, you have chemo planned. I'm going to adjust my work schedule. Well, now he's in the hospital and surgery and he's in kidney failure. So from there, he's going to spend the night and he ends up, he has a staph infection. So now he's in for a week and now chemo's delayed. And this was the entire process. This was the entire journey. And I think a piece of it was, Mitch and I talked about this at the end, he always had this go back to work date. And I think that's um, part of being a man and part of being a law enforcement officer. You really want to, I knew he wanted to be with his partners and he wanted to beat this. So whatever that date was, I respected it. I agreed with it. So he had set a date. This is the day I want to return to work. And literally a week before that day would come, something major would happen. It would be, we'd be in the ER or, I mean, cancer is so unpredictable. I think you have this mindset that, well, oh, if he has prostate cancer, you do your chemo and then you see where you're at. Well, in that nine week time, he had been in the ER. Um, He was having chest pains from the chemo. Uh, You don't know what the chemo side effects are. Uh, you're home puking your guts out. You're so it's it's really you're on this crazy roller coaster ride. But in that 26 months, uh, Mitch never did make it back to work. Unfortunately, um, every time we set a date, it was exactly a week before something would go to shit, and it was usually surgery in the hospital, something pretty major. And we finally just stopped setting the dates, and we learned to just take this one day at a time. And uh, it was crazy. It was a, it was a crazy twenty six months. And Austin, I'm sure you under kind you know you understand that piece of it being in it. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it's almost the same exact thing. White blood cell counts are low or, you know, uh, third degree burns from radiation, you know, time exactly same kind of thing where she had put together a a hopeful list. And it was, I think, six months longer um, than than she had planned. And it's it is such a weird thing to where, yeah, Thursday is fine. And then Friday comes around and it's painful. It's tough to watch. And you and I'm going to speak for myself, actually, I felt helpless, right? Like I felt so helpless in being able to do anything. Like, I mean, I would try and just like, oh, here's a blanket. Here's something. Can I get like, none of it helps. And it's really tough to watch. I call those the um, crying in the shower in private moments. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. So I know that this is extremely tough to talk about. And so I want to say thank you for for being so open and honest. But I, I think this is the perfect time for a segue into kind of what your mission is now and what we've done. And Brad uh, has done some good, great research and explained to me kind of everything. But Brad, can you give her a little leeway into what kind of the, the mission statement of Vicky's uh, nonprofit is? Yeah, for sure. So the the mission statement for Vicky Speed's Passion Project of Blue Cancer Connect is improving the lives of law enforcement officers and their families diagnosed with cancer through compassion, advocacy, and support aimed to ensure officers and families have the opportunity to receive assistance, awareness, education, treatment, and a chance at survival. It is. That's a mouthful, Vicky. How do you pull that off? I'm going to back up for a minute, and maybe this will give a little insight to it. In this 26 months, um, my husband did work where we live. Uh, we were never left alone um, from our station, from our department. Uh, I I was able to actually work full time until maybe six months before he passed. And I just had this incredible amount of support. I mean, it could be mowing the lawns, getting groceries, and it never stopped. And I am so grateful for that. So when Mitch died, uh, we, we did talk. We had those tough conversations right before he passed. And my question was, uh, what do I do with my life? Where, what do I, where do I go from here? What, is, what does my life look like? And I just kept seeing myself going back to work and just kind of going through the motions. And Austin, I know you know this piece. Um, I didn't want to answer questions. Yeah. I didn't want people to ask me details about what happened. How did he die? How did, and, and I just kept telling myself, I don't want to go back to work. So one of the last things Mitch told me is he said, let your purpose be bigger than your pain. And I don't think I even heard what he said, but it was after he passed it, it, just kind of kept resonating with me. Let my purpose be bigger than my pain. Well, what does my life look like? And I was a mess. I was heartbroken. Um, my whole life had been shattered. Um, the man I'd been with for 30 years is gone. Our dreams are gone. Everything's gone. So I spent a year, uh, I already knew I wasn't going back to work. I took a year off. Uh, I actually spent a year in therapy just trying to figure out what grief was, what it looked like, how was I going to get through it? Um, I knew I could do it, but I couldn't do it alone. So that was kind of the time for me. And the next couple of years, I was actually um, kind of out in the law enforcement advocacy speaking. Um, I was very big on marriage, helping marriages. Um, not a lot with widows. I, For whatever reason, I think that was kind of God's protection. Um, just I wasn't there. I wasn't ready. 
And then in late 21, I remember asking myself, what does Mitch's legacy really look like? Like this man, everyone talks about him. Um, they just talk about Mitch the man. Uh, he had written a book. He has all this music. What does it look like? And in 22, I was just, I don't want to say floundering. I was still out doing things, but I guess a lot of soul searching. And just all these pieces kept falling into place. And last summer, um, I think I had that aha moment that as much as I didn't want to deal with cancer, I knew one day it would be front and center in my life. And I knew um, now's the time. It's time to to go back into cancer to help other families. Uh, Mitch wasn't coming back. Um, he was gone. I felt like I was really starting to heal as far as my grief. And I wanted to get back. I wanted to get back to other officers and other families. So that's really what uh, what kind of started it. And every day I ask myself, what is his legacy? What would Mitch do? You know, through the course of this, I've actually uh, got to listen to uh, Vicki and, and building this and actually got to be a very small, small part of some feedback on some of this. And it's been it's been powerful. You're really taking quite a uh, humble approach to to the the build of the, the buildup of where we're going with this, which is Blue Cancer Connect, which I'm excited. I, I know Austin is too. We're both chomping at the bit. Let's 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 get there. What is, what is Blue Cancer? Yes, let's get it. Okay. Uh, what is Blue Cancer Connect? Blue Cancer Connect is, well, as you guys have heard, uh, Mitch was a patient of the City of Hope, which is probably one of the biggest hospitals. Uh, there's 43 sites in Southern California, but for me, it went back to uh, the care they gave, and it was incredible. Uh, I will I will say that. They were, they were here until he died, and he was on hospice, and they were still at my home. So I really started thinking about how can I help officers? And I knew I couldn't do it on my own. I could go share my story, but it didn't really change anything. So uh, I had this great idea one day. Um, I have all these amazing relationships still with the City of Hope. I thought, I'm going to go over there and talk to them. I'm going to go talk to them and just share my ideas and my thoughts and my passion and what I want to do and see what they say. So Open Arms invited me in, sat down with some pretty powerful people in the City of Hope, and every one of them looked at me and said, yes, what, what can we do? Yes, absolutely. We, we want to be a part of this. So for me, I think the heart of it is I go back to my husband, number one, being in law enforcement and being a man. Love you guys, but it's, I think that some of it is in law enforcement is you guys take care of other people other people don't take care of you. And I just kept remembering that. And I think, I think that's what stopped Mitch from actually going in to get checked. Uh, looking back, he knew he was sick for at least 18 months. He knew there were some signs there. He just thought it was the stress of the job. That's what he kept telling me. It's the stress of the job. It's the hours. At the time he was on a specialized unit and they were 24 seven, the phone rang off the hook. And he just thought, you know, I'm going to get ready to turn 50. Maybe I'm too old for this. Maybe, maybe the pace is too fast. Maybe I need to leave it to the younger guys. But I really just took my journey, uh, what we went through, um, the department being there for my family, I really was never alone, even though, Austin, you know this, there's times you do feel alone because I didn't share um, my thoughts. I didn't share. I never told anyone 
my husband's going to die. Like, I think my husband can die. I didn't talk about those things. Um, so I just tried to be really stoic and just be there for him and be his support and be his caregiver. So I go back to this journey and I want to do that for other officers, but it goes back to, are you guys getting physicals? Are you getting blood work? Oh, and yeah, cancer sucks. It sucks. I, I've actually made myself just in the last couple of months, I'm, I'm going through my full physical right now. I'm, you know, all my girl stuff, all my, because you have to face it. You have to, skin cancer is very prevalent because I live in the desert. You have to face these things. So I took my journey. I took my husband's journey. Um, I took his legacy, which is huge. Uh, he's, he's talked about at the station, at the department, and he's been gone almost five years. His, you hear his name all the time. And I, I knew it was my time to give back. I knew it was my time to help another family with that diagnosis, going through treatment. What if there is a wife or husband, take your pick, that needs a shoulder to cry on, that needs someone to say, is my husband going to die? Is my wife going to die? Because those are tough conversations. And I call it the A to Z. I want to do everything with them. I do know as tough as it is, there's going to be officers that aren't going to make it like my husband. But what if I did everything I could to get them diagnosed sooner instead of at stage four? What if in this physical or this blood work, what if they found things that um, they can have a full life? So there was, there was a lot of what ifs for me. So that's why I'm doing this. And that's extremely important, right? Like, I think, I think you're correct within this community where people don't want to get checked out, don't want to see, well, they're also scared of, yeah. you know, possibility of bad news, right? Uh, but it, it is a simple thing that is very difficult to accomplish, right? Like these were these checks, these, um, you know, blood work, whatever it may be, like, a lot of the people think, oh, this is just what you do, right? Well, it doesn't happen for everybody. And they don't do that. And you know, having someone like yourself who's who's been through everything in this realm uh, of this uh, terrible, terrible illness, you can relate to them. And that's a huge part about it is you, you can relate and say, hey, this is, here's some of the things you may face. Here's some of the things that you um, are going to have to work through. And, you know, a, a huge thing that I, I'm going to go back to something you mentioned earlier was you went to therapy and you started dealing with some of the emotions and the things yourself, right? Like, don't you think that was probably a pretty big portion of your healing process? Uh, you know, I'll be honest with you. I don't think I'd be standing if I hadn't have done that. I, first I want to say just kind of going off track here on the therapy side, you know, I always had a belief that when you go to therapy, they tell you, you know, how things are supposed to happen or you do one, two and three. And it's, it really wasn't like that. It was, um, my biggest question was, am I crazy? Am I crazy? Cause I can't, I can't even remember if I ate, I can't remember. I don't know what day it is. Am I crazy that, I mean, I'm an account, I was an accountant. My, my mind was my thing. Numbers are my thing. My memory's my thing. I had none of it. I couldn't, I could, I remember waking up one day going, I don't even know if I made my mortgage payment. What day is it? And you start thinking you're losing your mind. You start thinking, you know, you go through, through all these things and your life is shattered. And uh, I think just what they, what they helped me understand was I wasn't crazy. This was part of the process and it was okay to go through the process. 
and it really saved me. Yeah. 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 And that's a huge portion too, is, you know, you, you had to take care of yourself also mentally. Right. And that's when I am picture, when I used to in picture therapy, and this is a decade ago or more before I experienced it myself, it was that, you know, laid on, on the couch, cross your shoulders, kind of, kind of conversation. And that's not what it is. They're, it's different than that because they're taking in what you they're working with you individually. Right. And, and the struggles that you've gone through and, you know, it also, it takes somebody who actually understands grief to really make things make sense to you also. Like that's, that's a tough part and not every therapist can do that. You know, I agree with that, Austin. Um, I actually, I will share a piece of this, uh, my therapist was actually my husband's therapist. Um, I was not a therapy girl. My husband believed in therapy. Most of his life, he would go, he would call them tune-ups. He had had uh, some pretty, uh, the death of a baby. He was in a high-speed pursuit, but it was um, one of our detective's granddaughters and she was killed instantly. Uh, The guys took it really, really hard. So I know that was probably the last time my husband had gone. But when I reached out, I thought, what a better person than somebody that knew Mitch. And then it really made sense to me why my husband went to therapy. And um, I'm not going to I'm not too proud to say this. I was kind of ashamed that I never made that jump with him. But that fine tuning was um, probably all of that and him making that decision to go and then kind of handing that off to me and allowing, you know, the department allowing me to go and me being able to see the same person, it changed my whole life. If I can be so bold here, I'm going to take a, uh, a little bit of a part of our conversation that we had quite a while back, Vicki, and, and just break this down because I'd love to, I'd love to hear Blue's Cancer Connects strategy and your passion for kind of how to handle some of these really difficult uh, chapters of the cancer path. So what you just talked about, and I'll divide it up kind of the way, I don't know, that conversation we had a while back, pre-diagnosis, diagnosis, diagnosis, post-diagnosis, pre-death, and the walking into the difficult journey of of death itself. Pre-diagnosis is what? What does that look like? What what does Blue Cancer Connect on preventative? Well, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to get, we're going to talk to officers about Uh, I'm not even going to go into pre-screening, but I'm going to talk about your health. And it's not just your health, it's your health, whether it be at home, mentally, drinking, whatever. This is, this all is connected, but it's physicals. We need to start getting our officers out doing a physical once a year. And a lot of guys don't have doctors or, you know, they're single, they're men or women. It's not just men. Uh, the women also, or we were just talking about it in our own department. Um, these guys are drowning in overtime just with the rhetoric of law enforcement right now. And they're exhausted. They're beat. They're beat up. Um, it's not a big priority, but it needs to be a priority. And, you know, I think I had to come from the perspective of being a widow to change this uh, dialogue, to tell them, I wish my husband was still here. I wish my life was normal. Um I wish I was heading to retirement, but I'm not going to see any of that. And had Mitch done this, gone to the doctor when he didn't feel good and he knew it was more than just, I don't feel good, things would have turned out different. They didn't, 
but they can be different for officers. So it's starting with a physical. And I I am going to bring the City of Hope into this. They've actually kind of taught me, and we want to educate our officers on this. If you can't get into your doctor and you think something is going on, you can actually get into uh, City of Hope. You do not have to be a cancer patient. You can, they call it self-admit. You can go in and say, I need, um, for you guys, I need my PSA done, and they'll do it. But we need to educate uh, the community on these things. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think anybody knows, you know, we have a different organization here in Utah, but they said the same thing is if they can't get into their primary care, there are ways Mm -hmm. and, you know, you, people need to be made aware of that because awareness is kind of the first step here, right? Like I I think everyone's under the impression of like, it'll never happen to me. So don't worry about it. That's not the right path to be thinking. So PSA being, you know, male specific, what's the, what's the female officer equivalent to, you know, the preventative, the pre-diagnosis preventative uh, piece there? Well, it's for us, it's the mammograms and your paps, which, you know, your yearlies, but, you know, insurance has changed so much right now. Um, I mean, I'll take, I'm 58 and I actually was just at the doctor doing my, my girl stuff. And, you know, they're pushing it out now. Well, you've been great up to this point. Why don't we just wait two years or three years or um, just because the medical has changed so much and insurance has changed so much. And, you know, we have to know you can say no. And so uh, I actually said, no, I said, no, we're going to do it. I'm getting older. I realize everything's been great up to this point. But for me, I think what really hit me was um, I have one son and I am his only parent. And when Mitch died, my idea of health and taking care of myself changed immensely. Um, I've always been pretty healthy, but uh, I take things so differently now. I just see things so differently and uh, it shouldn't be like that, but it is. And just, we need to push. Here's the thing. If we educate officers and I don't want to say like, I don't care about the rest of society, but for me, it's very personal. If we start educating our officers and our law enforcement, and it's one more piece that you can be healthy and this is life and death. This isn't, it's not a common cold. It's not, this is actually life and death. But if you have one more piece where you can be here longer or get diagnosed sooner, why wouldn't you do it? So I hear you saying yeah. uh, education, education, you know, preventative maintenance, uh, awareness, but let's, let's look at, okay, we've got a diagnosis. Uh, we've just been hitting the head with a slam sledgehammer. Our lives just got turned upside down. What does, what does Blue Cancer connect in that, in that arena? Well, this is actually pretty cool. Um, I actually have, uh, we have social workers inside the cancer treatment centers that you have a, basically a direct number. You have, you can either fax in a form if you're an officer, or you can call a direct number and, and uh, be in contact with a social worker. And I know the City of Hope is in five states but this includes all states for these um, social workers. So say you work in LA or you work in, I don't know, we'll say Utah and you don't, um, you've been diagnosed. You're not sure what to do. Well, you can actually contact one of our, the social workers that's working with us, let them know where you're at. They are going to make the phone call to get you in, let them know you are a law enforcement officer let them know that connection and they are going to stay with you in this process. 
They're going to make sure that the treatment started. Um, if you call back two weeks later and you're like, I have heard from no one. And Austin, I'm sure you know this, you know, there things happen and, ball, you know, the ball gets dropped a lot. And you call back and you say, I've heard from absolutely no one. That social worker is going to make that phone call for you. They're going to they're going to find out and they're going to find out now, because when you've been diagnosed, it is an urgent matter. Yeah. Well, that's the thing during COVID. I think they were, I think there was a statistic out that was like 70% are going undiagnosed or, you know, had been diagnosed and not received services because of the COVID regulations in the hospitals. And they were having a tough time, you know, starting the treatment process. So having someone available that is an expert in the field is what I'm going to call these social workers because they really are, is vital like so important for people to know that they can make a phone call and it will actually go somewhere because people tend to lose hope pretty quickly. And if, if they go a couple of phone calls with no return, most people are going to give up. I, I think that's true. And I think if you don't have an advocate for yourself, I think I came to understand I was Mitch's advocate. Mitch wasn't going to, I can tell you right now, my husband was not going to call and hound and hound and hound the city of hope if they didn't call back, he didn't feel good. He was fighting for his life. He was, um, I think every day you wake up, you're trying to process, I have cancer. What is going to happen to me? I have cancer. And even though you're trying to live this normal life and get through this process, it's right here. I have cancer. Well, there's so many things that are coming at you immediately and flooding as you're trying to even wrap your brain around what's happening to your own health. Can you speak to to some of those things? I mean, you're talking about next paycheck, FMLA, apartment uh, interaction, and then your your diet, uh, nutrition. I mean, all these things are just flooding in and you're getting bombarded with, hey, do this. Hey, you've got to be here. Here's what's going on. You have to do this. How overwhelming is that, really? Very. <laughs> you know, you... I think I'm, I'm going to tell you from a spouse's standpoint, um, and it could be husband, wife, it could be a boyfriend, girlfriend, um, whatever this, this diagnosis is really hard, but somebody has to hit the ground running. And, um, it was me in that case. And, you know, Brad, I think everything you said covered it exactly. The first thing I did was, oh my God, Mitch's diet. What can you have? Can you not have? And again, stay off of WebMD. Worst idea ever. <laughs> My husband looked like he was dying by the time I got done with his diet. It was um, that was kind of a joke for us. But I think there's pieces that I have in this that would really help people get a calendar. The day they're diagnosed, you get a yearly calendar because you are going to need this when you start fighting the station, the department, workman's comp. I had every appointment. I had, it didn't matter if I went to pick up prescriptions, I wrote them down. Um, I kept all the receipts and I didn't even know what I was getting into. I had never done workman's comp. And my first questions were, does he have a job? Is he going to get paid? How am I going to make my mortgage payment? Our son was in college. Are we going to lose our house? And you go through all these things. And then at the end, you don't want to say it, but to yourself, you say it, is he going to die? And that that's literally everything that's, that's kind of laid on your lap and you have to start kind of taking one thing at a time. And for me, it's at the station level, there are so many pieces to this, but 
You know, it's really important, and I do hear it a lot. Um, I'm actually in the middle of of helping some some officers, quite a few officers actually, from a few different agencies. A lot of times, you're forgotten. You might not always be that person that your station or you know wherever you're working out of remembers you. You might be at home. This is a big complaint right now, and I know we're in different times, but we have two young officers with stage four cancer right now, and I don't want to say the complaint, but they feel forgotten, and they're fighting for their life. And those are things that we need to we need to make sure they're not. They're still, you know, they're still part of the team. They're still sworn officers. It's just, I think, awareness for for me. It's that personal awareness of, hey, this is what they need. Um, you know, I don't want to go in and start taking over departments, but I do want to educate spouses or girlfriends, boyfriends, kids, um, whatever. You need to know what your rights are. You need to know: is he going to get paid? Does he have leave? Uh, when can they donate leave? Who's your workman's comp carrier? Who's your attorneys? So there, there's a lot of questions. Yeah. Well, that's that's something I want to make sure and and hit home with what you were just talking about because, you know, on the mental health side, working with workman's comp and all of those type of things are is difficult in itself, right? Like it's extremely difficult to navigate case managers and reimbursements and all of that type of thing. And this is where I want to hit home and how huge it is that someone like yourself is seasoned in those type of things and that you are willing to help people walk through it because that is going to be a huge fear. I mean, losing your house, losing, you know, your career, you're losing your insurance. If something doesn't go through correctly, then you're out of pocket, you know, millions of dollars, literally millions. I know for a fact, my, my girlfriend's insurance was billed out like $1.7 million for her treatment. And we still paid a massive amount of cash as well. So all of that type of stuff is something that you need someone to help you with. And that's, I think that's in itself is a huge core part of your nonprofit and what you offer is knowledge and the capability to have somebody come to you and just say, where do I go? Cause I have no idea. On the, and just to lend to that, it's so uh, reassuring to just have somebody in your corner, just to know somebody's there uh, mm-hmm. saying, Hey, it's not okay now, but it will be okay. We're, and you're not alone you know, that in and of itself is so incredibly helpful. So, okay. So, so we're, we're kind of, I want to keep us moving, um, through the, through, through the diagnosis. And, and I think we'll have time to, to, you know, push some people to you if they have more questions or maybe they can ask questions through our, our social media as well. But after the diagnosis and the, the ensuing journey of now, now you've, said, Hey, I'm, I'm here to help. I'm here to give you guidance. I'm here to give you whatever, you know, components, uh, that may be helpful to your, uh, your struggle, your difficult journey. Let's, let's just talk about some really difficult things, which is we're, we've now been told we're, we're in the final stages. Uh, we're not going to win the battle. That's the sad reality of, of cancer. What does blue cancer connects involvement with that family you know is it hospice is it guidance what tell us a little bit about that well i think you know every situation's different i'll just use um, our example mitch was actually in the hospital about 10 days in uh, we couldn't control the pain and i had no one there to tell me that hospice was the next step 
Uh, I'll be honest with you. I just thought he was coming home. I didn't know this was the end. He was actually doing amazing. But I had a friend tell me, uh, she pulled me aside and she said, you won't get Mitch out of here unless you put him on hospice. It's just the amount of medication and pain meds and nobody will ever prescribe these to you. And I remember standing at the end of the hallway by myself and I thought, what did she just say? Hospice? Doesn't that mean you're dying? Doesn't that mean like that's the end? And I'm looking at this man and I thought, okay, he doesn't look like he's dying. I know he's really sick. I know things had taken a turn, but nobody ever explained that piece to me. And I remember getting in the car, leaving the hospital and looking back, cause you reflect back and Mitch had asked me to please never bring him to the hospital again. And you know, you're, you're thinking, okay, hospice, he doesn't want to come back. Like what is going on? So we went home and I had, I obviously I had a friend that kind of took care of all this and they showed up and I mean, I had to ask him, is my husband dying? Like, why are you here? Why are you, what is going on? Like we can't get his meds or we can't. So I, I had to kind of process that for a few minutes. And I think there's kind of a gentler way to do this. Cause there's several different, there's a lot of reasons that you can have hospice and it doesn't mean you're dying tomorrow. Uh, for Mitch, it was, right. um, I think six weeks. And when we first got home, you know, he was great. He was happy. He was, um, so you're just, you're in shock and you have these people in your house and these nurses and these. So I think it's, it's having maybe somebody there to say things a little bit gentler, kind of give you an idea what's going on. And they might not want you to say anything, but they might want, want just to know that you're there just to know that somebody from Blue Cancer Connect is there if you need that support, or maybe you need the station to be notified. Maybe you want his partners notified. It's it's that little piece of just kind of helping you through this, obviously a very tough process. You know, those conversations are really, really difficult. We work in a community that has difficult conversations externally, but internally they become somewhat awkward and, and, uh, you know, I love Austin. I love your story of that doctor trying to be sensitive to, you know, your fiance's uh, diagnosis of I, I, how would you prefer that I do this? Because there's no easy way to do this. There's no fun way to do it. I can't fun this up enough to tell you your life's fixing to get turned upside down, just completely wrecked. And I think that's where this is so, this is such an amazing endeavor that you're taking on that you're, you're willingly going into these, say, Hey, let me have that conversation with the department or let me have the conversation with you about what's coming because I know this is going to be really hard. Guidance. Is that fair? Guidance. That's, I, I think how, and I want you to be brutally honest. Was there anybody who was helping you through your process? No. That's it, exactly. That's, and that's why your mission is such a beautiful one and uh, an amazing endeavor because I mean, I'm sure that you wish that there was somebody, right? Somebody that could just point you in the right direction and, and help you understand all the back end stuff. Cause I, I want to hit it again. Like these workers comps and all of these insurance things, they're so different. Every normal day person just doesn't know what to do with that. Um, they, they don't teach you that in the academy on how to work through a workers comp thing from an on the job, you know, issue. Right, Brad? Like that's, there's oh, no absolutely. one there. Even the, even the peer support, uh, teams that we build, you, you, 
you can talk about those things superficially, but you really have to be in them to learn uh, and have somebody who's navigated like what we're having this conversation with Vicky. Uh, you really have, it, it, it's so, so worth it to have somebody there who has walked that journey and said, here's, here's the right person to call. Here's the phone number. Here's the person. Here's that, you know, and, and I love the fact that she's, you know, you've got a, a string of social workers on call for these officers and obviously culturally competent. They know uh, what it's like to deal with the officer and their families. And, and, but that's invaluable. It's invaluable, you know? Well, uh, let me just put you on the spot again, Vicki. I know you've done some of this already. Uh, have you had feedback from people you've helped uh, walk down the path of uh, navigating cancer diagnosis and difficult times? Have you had that uh, I have yet. actually, I have an officer who is trying, he was diagnosed stage two or past kind of just, I think God brought us together. I'll say that. And we d ended up uh, helping him with a fundraiser. Um, he's a different department, but we became family. I mean, obviously just really cared about him and what happened. And the reason he reached out to me is he had heard that my husband was a patient at the city of hope and he was somewhere else. So he wanted to know, was there any way he could get into the City of Hope to get a second opinion? Things just were not going good. Well, I also have been blessed with that uh, phone number, we'll say. So I was able to do that and give him the number and make that connection for them. So he did go to the City of Hope. He got a second opinion, ended up going to them. He's trying to get back to work right now. It's been He's been off work. It'll be two years in October, actually. He's got some residual from chemo, but... Okay, I have this, I'm going to get emotional. Okay, it's going to get emotional. That's okay. Take your time. You know, you don't you don't realize. Um, you hear like stage two, he'll be fine. He'll be uh, he'll be That's good. Okay. But I think it's what we're talking about: the gratitude of having somebody there, somebody to um, talk to your wife and to walk her through it. And then, you know, he and I have really tough conversations that we would never have in front of his wife or his family. He has three girls. And those are, I think for me personally, that's something that is more important than anything is the raw conversations that you can't have with anybody else that you don't want your spouse to hear, um, that you don't want your kids to hear. And I think it was in that moment that I really realized wow, I can make a difference. And uh, and I know in my department right now, we have a 28-year-old young man who's been diagnosed stage four. I spent a lot of time with his mom. She's angry. She's mad. Uh, she doesn't understand it. We've had a few really tough conversations, more emotional. Uh, I think right now she just needs support. She just, this is her son. And she has asked those questions, you know, does he have a job? Is he going to get paid? Is he going to, um, and so these things start happening and you just start seeing, wow, I can really make a difference. I can really have these tough conversations, but, um, yes, back to your question, that first officer, uh, he is actually going back to work in May. And I think to see, to be on this journey with him has been, uh, just incredible. God, that's it's so beautiful. It's one of those things you're talking, you know, and it's bringing up a lot of memories for me is as a, a spouse, um, you know, chemo and radiation and the medications and all of these things, 
it does change people, you know, like, you know, it can be anger is up. It can be brain fog. Uh, you know, there's energy levels, you know, just the ability to have a conversation with somebody going through treatment is much different and nobody put, nobody prepares you for that. The doctors don't, didn't prepare me for the fact that, you know, uh, there she'd be a somewhat of a different person for a while after all these, you can't stay the same. You can't stay the same when your life is being threatened and you know, you're scared and you're on so much medication and things to, to keep you alive or to help you heal. And so those conversations, that's, that's something the, the conversation you're having with the mom is some, something I wish could have been available for someone like myself, which is just like, Hey, don't set expectations on some things, right? Like don't expect that once, you know, the chemo and radiation is done, everything's going to be hunky-dory and magical and wonderful again, right? There's still a lot of things that have to go on. Uh, and that that was a tough part for me, really. And I wish, really wish that I could have had a conversation with somebody that could prepare me for it. And, and we made it through, right? And I, I understood it. Luckily, I'm in mental health, so I got a lot of that stuff. But damn, it was hard. Well, I'm actually going to share a very ugly piece of this. I don't know that I've ever shared with anyone. These are the these are the tough pieces. When Mitch got out of the hospital at uh, the beginning of June of 18, he died July 7th of 18. It was we call it the, you know, the big turn, the big shift, the everything was the wheels were coming off and it happened really really quickly. But there's there's two things I remember that just where the gut punches were, were, um, you have to start talking about the tough conversation of money while they're still alive, your home money benefits. He and I actually got on the phone with his attorney and it's, it's, I mean, basically you're preparing for them to die. That's the conversation you're having. Um, while they're still alive are, did we do everything right is, that's probably the, one of the worst conversations that I remember being a part of because basically we're on the phone saying, Hey, um, yeah, I know my husband's getting ready to die. Are we, are we good? Are we, um, is my house protected? Is my, is workman's comp? Are we like, have we done everything we're supposed to? And so that was a really hard conversation. And then, uh, about a month before Mitch died, uh, the cancer just kind of took over his body and, he was paralyzed from the waist down and, you know, you don't know what it's going to do and you don't know um, how cancer is going to react, but this is the ugliness of cancer. And this is the, um, probably the pieces I don't talk about too much, but I think these are the times you need somebody there that you need somebody that understands that everything's going to shit right now. My whole life is going to shit. My, I'm watching my husband die. My, I don't care about anything. I, what is happening? And I think that's the, the really tough, and there's tough decisions to make at the end. There's very tough decisions about um, their medication. Do you, how comfortable do you want to make them? These are the really ugly conversations that you don't know are coming, but yeah, I wish somebody had maybe prepared me a little bit. How blessed do you feel you would have been if you'd have had somebody to walk with you through those difficult conversations and maybe not even just to be present while you're having them, but to have the guidance of saying, Hey, here's some bullet points that you need to go over. I think it's the being, maybe just having somebody there telling you what to expect. 
um, when it got to the end, everything was a gut punch. I just felt like it was a gut punch after gut punch after gut punch. And, you know, I can remember the shower moments. I can remember being in the shower and just bawling my eyes out and, you know, really crying out to God going, I don't know how much more I can do of this. I don't know how much more I can take. It's like, I feel like every two hours, something new is happening. And, and I didn't, I wasn't prepared for it. Nobody said, Hey, this is normal, or this is what happens, or this is what's going to happen in the next couple of days. You know, he's, he's probably going to pass within the next 24 hours. The, um, th- those are the really ugly things that can happen with cancer, but I-, I wish I had had someone to maybe just prepare me a little bit better. Yeah. And, you know, my sister's going through that very thing right now, uh, having just been a few weeks out from death, uh, loss of her husband, uh, talking about, you know, we had those conversations and they're still, they're still somewhat confusing. You know, she's still having to navigate uh, out of those, con- those difficult finance conversations and, and, uh, logistic life, logistic conversations about mortgages and, and just really, you know, the carryover that is, is, and how helpful that conversation was, but you still have to walk through it after, you know, you put them, uh, you know, after they pass and navigate through is blue cancer connect a part of that post death journey as well. I mean, this is, yes, again, this is, we're talking about some really hard things. Uh, and, and I appreciate you coming on talking about it because this is, this hurts my heart. I know uh, we're all, everybody listening probably is severely impacted by this because, but I, I don't think, I think we do a disservice by not having these conversations as well. So post uh, funeral, what does, what does blue cancers connect uh, on the, um, the, you know, we've, we've buried them. We're mourning. What does Blue Cancer Connect do now? I think the biggest thing is it's not the month after. It's not the six months after. I always say it's the year mark. It's the two year mark. It's life. People have families, they have jobs, they have children. And it's not that they don't care, but you are not a priority and they do think about you. It's just maybe not openly or they pick up the phone So being in law enforcement, for me, it went from, I'll kind of give you what happened with me, was Mitch died on a Saturday night. I had the department at my house the next day. I was fully escorted everywhere to plan his funeral. I was kind of in and out of the station. And there's this kind of this whirlwind for three weeks until his funeral. And then it's the full, you know, funeral and law enforcement everywhere. And you feel so loved and you feel, you just know this is your family and uh, the funeral ends. And then it kind of starts dwindling down to the people that were just really important in their life, their partners, their best friends, their, the guys they went to the academy with. And then over time that starts dwindling and you kind of hit that, that year mark and the one year anniversary is, is a big deal and everyone remembers you, but then it's like, it just stops. And I kind of knew to expect that. Um, I knew I wasn't everyone's responsibility. I knew they had families, but there's times you feel so alone. There's times that um, you wonder if you're going to be okay. Uh, you wake up and go, what am I doing? You know, I don't even know what I'm doing with my life. I'm a mess. I'm, I'm a hot mess. I'm, 
So I think in Blue Cancer Connect, you know, that's our piece with it is just remembering and that's just having somebody to check up on you, having somebody to check in. And, you know, even like this mom of the deputy, um, she really doesn't, she doesn't really want anybody around, but she wants that text message. Um, She wants that, hey, I'm just checking on you. Do you need anything? And the response back is, you know, just thank you for caring. Thank you for caring about my son and about my family. And um, I think it's those little things. And that's the pieces that Blue Cancer Connect, that's where we're going to come in. Man, I that that whole process, right? Losing a loved one, I've, I've experienced that as well through, you know, illness and other things. That's what people want. Like a lot of the times I think people are going to say, no, I don't need anything, but thank you. Right. Like it, 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 there is a different portion. Like they're not like, Hey, come to my house and sit and chat with me. They're just like, Oh, somebody actually gives a shit. Right. And especially in today's world where there's a lot of selfishness, a lot of self-preservation, a lot of those type of things to see someone like yourself with a mission who it, it really is about the other person now. And, and it's about you giving back. And I just, I just want to say thank you for that. And I, I'm very impressed by what you have going on and what you're doing for these people. I think it's really difficult for people to know what to say to the people who, the loved ones, the family members that have lost. And as a consequence, sometimes they don't say anything. And that's that removal of that uh, connect is, is it's vast. I've, I've not experienced it on a personal level. I've watched it outside in. I'm watching it now unfold a little bit and look in the, in the cop world, in the first responder world, avoidance coping is a thing. And, you know, if I don't know what to say, then I'm just not going to say anything. And, and, you know, the message to these uh, first responders out there that maybe have a loved one or a partner going through cancer. I know what my message would be, Vicki, and I'm going to turn it to you in just a second, but my message is be bold, be bold because they need your support, be bold because they need your uh, connection, be bold because they need your love. They, they, you know, we, we oftentimes don't talk about loving each other enough. We know we do. We just don't say those words. Um, but this is a community that's full of love, uh, for our fellow, uh, first responders, our partners. Uh, we, we love those standing beside us and it's painful uh, and it's maybe a tad selfish that, that we look at this from a standpoint of, you know, I'm not going to connect because it's going to make me feel weird or it's going to hurt me too, or I may cry or I may, you know, whatever, whatever, fill in the gap thing that may happen. But, you know, that would be my message to uh, those out there. Uh, Vicki, what would your message be to them that, that, you know, how did, how do they, how do they stay? What do they say? What do they, how do what, what would, what's the best thing that, that they could do to come across to those loved ones? Well, you know, it's, we're talking about this. It actually gets an awkward conversation. Honestly, I would rather have someone tell me, and it has happened that I can't, I'm sorry, but I just can't do this. I'm not okay. This has really affected me. There's actually three deputies that told me from the get go, I'm sorry, but I can't come check on you. I can't call you. I'm this, this just destroyed me and I'm sorry, but, and I'm okay with that. Um, so I know if I run into him in town, I just hug him, you know, just want to tell you, I love you. And I respect that honestly. And I'm going to share a story with you that the sergeant that came by my house yesterday was my husband's best friend. And this is one of the first times he's been able to talk to me without crying. 
And it was an incredible conversation. And Mitch is going to be gone five years. And he apologized. Uh, and I didn't need him to, but, and I know he loves me. I know he loved my husband. I know this has been very, very difficult on him. But I think the flip side of that is I would rather have you tell me, Vicki, I just can't, I just can't talk to you. It's so difficult for me. I would rather have you say that than not say anything at all. Sure. I oftentimes find myself saying uh, in those moments, I just say, I don't have words. I, I don't, I yeah. don't have any idea what to say, but I'm here. And that's honestly, that's perfect. Like Brad, I think you nailed it. Well, it's really, uh, I, I would love to keep going. I think Austin, we probably ought to kind of wrap up here. And I, and I, I think we could spend all day uh, having this conversation because your passion comes through and the topic is so so real and raw. We've gotten really raw in conversation today. Vicki, if people wanted to connect with Blue Cancer Connect, uh, how would they find you? How would they get involved if they're hurting out there and need some guidance? Uh, they're they're in the diagnosis uh, they need, or how do they get a hold of Vicki Speed or your organization? Well, right now, probably the easiest way, um, this is just newly launched. If people don't know that, we're about three days in and kind of hit the ground running. Um, I would say go to bluecancerconnect.org. There's an, my, e my personal emails on there right now. Uh, there's a phone number. Um, do not hesitate to call. Do not hesitate to email me. Here's the thing with cancer. It's urgent. It's not a conversation that you can put off for a month or six months, or I'll get to it on my day off. You know, and if it's not me, if you want to talk to a male officer or you want to talk to somebody who's actually going through cancer, we can make that happen too. But there's a real sense of urgency with, with this. This is, um, I just don't, I don't want to see people be diagnosed at stage four. I just, I don't. And that's uh, pretty close to my heart and we need to change it. So if you think this is you and you don't want to talk to your spouse or you don't want to talk to your partner um, and you and your partners being on WebMD, I'm telling you, that's not the answer. My husband did that, you know, make the call and reach out and just, whether you're in California, it doesn't matter what state you're in. I will personally, or my team will help you make things happen and get you in, but get that blood work, get that exam, get that physical. Could not, uh, could not agree more. Vicki, powerful, powerful conversation today. Thank you so much for coming on and really look forward to seeing Blue Cancer Connect grow and flourish in the, uh, in the coming months and years. Well, you guys, thank you for this opportunity. Um, it's really amazing just to be able to share my story and share my cause and, you know, just hope to change a few lives. And I want to leave on this message right here. And this is the second time in, uh, in a row I've said, you know, we, we know that the phone weighs a thousand pounds when you're struggling or when there's stuff that happens in your life. But there are people out there like Vicki, like her organization that are willing to step in to help relieve some of that anxiety and some of those those other issues that may be going on. So, you know, pick up the phone, make a phone call, reach out. Uh, there are people out here that are, are still good people and they don't want anything from you. They just want to help. So thank you, Vicki. Uh, I appreciate all the time that you spent with us today. Thank you guys very Thanks, much. Thanks, Vic. Thank you for listening to this segment of No One Fights Alone. 
We want to give a special shout out to our sponsors of this episode, Chateau Recovery and First Responder Trauma Counselors. Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues, it addresses the why. Each of their trauma-trained and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the county to treat responders and veterans, in fact it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information, or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. First responder trauma counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour, all-badges, all-uniforms, all-scrubs, educational experience helps you create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. FRTC's National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent licensed behavioral health clinicians, who teach from lived experience not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive, educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details go to their website 911overwatch.org or contact First Responder Trauma Counselors at 970-222-4193, this could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.